Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. From the Battery Street Studios of KCBS Radio in San Francisco, I'm Matt Pittman, and this is Bay Current for Tuesday, December 7th. Eighty years ago today. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. And with that, the United States was launched into World War II. More than 2,400 servicemen and civilians were killed. The USS Arizona, USS Oklahoma, and USS Utah were sunk. 19 more ships were damaged, and hundreds of planes destroyed during the 75-minute sneak attack. The U.S. would declare war on Japan the next day. This morning, my KCBS radio colleagues Holly Kwan and Matt Bigler spoke on the air with Steve Toomey, author of Countdown to Pearl Harbor, The 12 Days to the Attack. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel like growing up on the West Coast, I already knew about Pearl Harbor and it's such a significant attraction for tourists in, in Honolulu. I find it, I imagine that hard to believe that it could be fading from memory, but, but are we getting to the point where maybe it is? I don't think so. Uh, I wrote the book five years ago, and this year I've gotten more requests to talk about it than any year since. So uh, I think the um, the memory and the image of Pearl Harbor is still very much with a lot of people, even though uh, most of those involved 80 years ago are, are no longer with us. And uh, I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, Pearl Harbor is something uh, that offers uh, a lot of lessons for, uh, for us today in terms of um, um, simple management of a situation. I'm a big fan of history, and one of the reasons is you learn something new almost every time you look at even a story that you think you knew everything about. This time, I think that I didn't realize that Pearl Harbor was so shallow, and that's one of the reasons that the American Navy thought that it would be protected against Japanese torpedoes. Can you talk more about that? Sure. That's uh, one of the most fascinating and, and I think most uh, overlooked aspects of the attack was uh, the simple uh, logistical issue or tactical issue of 
whether you could drop a torpedo into Pearl Harbor and not have it simply fall all the way to the bottom and uh, harm nothing and no one. The Navy in Pearl Harbor thought that the harbor was shallow enough so that the Japanese could never drop a torpedo from an airplane and have it do anything. What they had failed to uh, allow for was that the Japanese knew the depth of Pearl Harbor. They knew it was shallow. And even though we regarded them as not particularly mechanically inclined, they had made some modifications to their torpedoes uh, that enabled them to be dropped and not fall all the way to the bottom of the harbor. And uh, as a result, the first weapons that were released, the, the first weapons that the Japanese used uh, in the attack were torpedoes. And they did by far the most damage to the Pacific fleet. Uh, so that our kind of assumption about what they could and couldn't do proved uh, literally fatal in that case. So what kind of adjustments did they make at the time and how long did they take, uh, did the U.S. military take to, to make those adjustments? Uh, you mean the Japanese? Well, yeah. Uh, the Japanese, um, it was actually surprisingly simple. Uh, a torpe torpedo weighs about 2,000 pounds and uh, nearly a ton, in other words. And um, the uh, modification consisted of simply adding additional fins to the torpedo so that it did not spin. And because it didn't spin, it didn't drop as far into the water once it was uh, released. And uh, it was an incredibly simple modification that the Japanese had worked on right up until the time their attack fleet left Japan. And uh, it proved enormously successful. I guess maybe one of the lessons is hubris and overconfidence can be your downfall. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, so much of Pearl Harbor was the result of American assumptions about uh, all manner of things, but particularly about the skills and the intentions of the Japanese. We didn't regard them as particularly savvy uh, warriors. We thought their planes didn't work too well. We didn't think they could um, fly too well. Uh, and um, we also thought that the distance between Japan and Pearl Harbor was so great, about 3,000 miles, that nobody could sail that far without being seen. Um, in every one of those aspects, the Japanese uh, proved us wrong. They, uh, uh, they're quite mechanically skilled, quite good pilots, and they could sail that far without being seen. Uh, so hubris is uh, a major reason, reason, I think, for what happened. This was 1941, and radio was how people got their information. Back then, it was our signal that is now KCBS that was vital in distributing information for CBS News, as information flowed from Honolulu to the West Coast and eventually to the East Coast, which was the only major news hub at the time. I bring in the man we call... Anchor Emeritus, Stan Bunger, familiar name, familiar voice for many years, the voice of the morning news here on KCBS Radio. And uh, thanks for giving me a couple minutes of your time out of retirement, Stan. First, I know people want to know, everything doing all right in retirement? Uh, it's all good. The alarm clock does not go off at 3.30 anymore. <laughs> and uh, my wife and I are really enjoying sort of the uh, the freedom and flexibility of retired life. I um, I. I'll be real honest and say that I uh, enjoyed every minute of every day I spent at KCBS, and I'm enjoying pretty much every minute of every day I'm spending in, in retirement. Now, we've been doing some traveling and a lot of just hanging out and doing nothing, and it's all been good. That is excellent, and uh, happy to hear everything's working out. So I wanted to touch base with you about uh, this 
day in, in history as we remember 80 years since the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm from Seattle, worked up in Seattle radio for many, many years before I moved down to the Bay. And I got to know a gentleman by the name of Felix Bennell, who was a contributor at Cairo, K-I-R-O radio for uh, many years with us up there. Uh, he was our resident historian and a self-described history nerd. But uh, having that love of radio and that love of history and practicing both vocationally, he was just a, a great resource for a, another self-identifying radio nerd like myself. And we had a couple of different, very, very fascinating conversations about uh, Pearl Harbor and the vital role that radio played in that now prehistoric time to so many, uh, where radio was the only method of communication. And then uh, you factor in the fact that, that here out on the West Coast, for many in the country, this was still very much an outpost, right, um, at that place and time in history. The big 50,000-watt stations, like KCBS here in San Francisco, uh, KIRO, uh, 710 AM at the time, up in Seattle became the the pipeline, the only method of information as to what was happening. And then in that period of uncertainty afterward, you had blackouts all up and down the West Coast. And so these these massive, powerful radio stations became these the only beacons of information uh, to trickle from the West out to the East Coast, where the balance of the country and the information centers were at the time, New York, Washington, D.C., et cetera. Um, and KCBS played a pretty vital role in that. And you and I were chatting this morning over text, and you were sharing a, a pretty interesting story about uh, kind of the place in history that KCBS played in disseminating a lot of vital information at a very uncertain time. Yeah, in fact, you have to sort of peel back KCBS and go to its antecedent, KQW, because uh, setting the stage in 1941, CBS did not own a radio station in San Francisco at that time. Um, it, it had affiliates, and so, you know, maybe getting too deep into the way radio worked back then, but uh, the, 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 the broadcasting companies, um, you had General Electric and NBC, and you had uh, CBS, kind of were the two big players. And CBS did not own uh, a frequency in San Francisco. It, it did in Los Angeles, uh, KNX, which is still on the air and, and doing quite well right. in, in L.A. But at the time, uh, the, the affiliate uh, was actually uh, KSFO and KQW came up into the picture. KQW uh, was the station, the, the descendant of the station started by Charles Harold in San Jose in 1909. And uh, all of the research has proved over the years, despite claims by others, that that station, the 1909 Charles Herald station, first known just as San Jose Calling, was in fact the first regularly scheduled radio station uh, in the country and in the world. Mm. So fast forward to 1941, Pearl Harbor Day, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor in Honolulu on a Sunday morning uh, in 1941, December 7th, 1941, you have uh, a country that is not really set up for the kind of real-time, minute-to-minute news coverage, the way we think of it today, you know, where not just radio and television, but social media broadcast everything instantly, and in some cases in a rather unfiltered way. Um, What happened over the course of the war was, uh, you know, a movement of broadcast journalists to the West Coast, into the Pacific Theater. And one of them, a really interesting guy who I worked with for a number of years at KCBS, was Don Mosley. And Don 
really was a legend. Don uh, was hired by CBS at the age of 21, the youngest CBS News correspondent at the time. Wow. And we're talking about Murrow's boys here, right? Yeah, these are, yeah. These are the, yeah. And so Don Mosley, uh, who then lasted for more than 60 years uh, working in San Francisco for CBS and KCBS as, as time went on, uh, was one of the people who was connected to the Pacific Theater. And in, in some cases, what that, re- what that required was, you know, monitoring shortwave radio transmissions and, you know, picking up the information perhaps even from enemy broadcasts. And that's actually how the news of the Japanese plan to surrender in 1945 was captured. Mosley and his colleagues uh, picked up Japanese shortwave radio broadcasts and broke the story. Oh, uh, my that Japan goodness. was preparing to surrender. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing wow. to consider that, you know, guys with a set of headphones on sitting in a studio in San Francisco were able to, you know, get one of the greatest scoops uh, of their time in, in that way. Uh, but, you know, Matt, the, the fascinating thing, too, was, you know, the technology that moved this information from, let's say, in the case of Pacific Theater News, from mm-hmm. the West Coast to the rest of the country, relied on on these telephone network switching centers. And I, I can't remember at the moment exactly how many, but there were a number of them between the West Coast and, and New York, where you know, the nerve center of these networks was. And each each you know uh, transmission had to be sent through these these switching centers, and it required you know, physical relays to be thrown and you know uh, connections to be made. You can imagine the you know the old scenes of people sticking plugs and right. into sockets. Right, and that sort of thing had to happen. Uh, it wasn't as simple as just you know you picking up the phone and dialing me this morning and and uh, me talking back to you over a digital device. It was right. much more complicated and much more analog. Thanks to Stan Bunger, my KCBS radio colleagues Holly Kwan and Matt Bigler, as well as author Steve Toomey. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Bay Current on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. And every episode of the Bay Current podcast is available on the KCBS radio YouTube page. There's a link in our show notes. Coming up on tomorrow's Bay Current. After seven on and off days of deliberation and two panel members being kicked off, the jury found Peterson guilty of first degree murder in the killing of his wife, Lacey. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant, Scott Lee Peterson, guilty of the crime of murder. The jury also found there were special circumstances, meaning Scott Peterson still faces the death penalty. Peterson showed no emotion, staring straight ahead as the verdicts are read. The resentencing of Scott Peterson. 17 years after he was found guilty of murdering his pregnant wife, Lacey, and their unborn child. I'll be in the courtroom. Part of our team coverage featuring KCBS Radio's Matt Bigler and Margie Schaefer. On tomorrow's Bay Current, we'll review the case and why 17 years later, Peterson is being resentenced after originally getting the death penalty. That's it for today's Bay Current. I'm Matt Pittman. We'll chat with you again tomorrow. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 
Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.